why do we do all these things? We pray and we go and we give. It's because Jesus has changed our life. And uh, he continues to bless us. And in response to the blessing, we do these things. These aren't have-tos. These are want-tos. And yet this Jesus, though he is the Son of God, was crucified. We read all about it from a first-hand witness over the last few weeks. His name was John. He was a first-hand witness of all that befell the Son of God. We read about in, in detail the details of the manifold trials the Lord himself was exposed to at the hands of Jewish religious leaders, at the hands of Roman governing officials. We read about how he was mocked, slapped in the face, and so on. We read about how he was beaten and how he was whipped. We read about how he was obligated to carry his own cross to the place of crucifixion. And, and of course, we read about the crucifixion last week. We read about the crucifixion itself, John's words. It was torturous, and a grievous thing even to think about it. And now the question before us is, now what happened next? What happened after the crucifixion? Well, we're fortunate because John the eyewitness has more to tell us, and here it is. We'll pick up what he had to say in John chapter 19. That's where we are now. John chapter 19, beginning in verse 31. Look what it says. The Jews, therefore, because it was the day of preparation so that the bodies should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Here's what's happening. The Sabbath is always a special day. Jews really, really make something of it because God does. And so the Sabbath begins on sundown, not in the morning, but in the evening, sundown. Soon it's going to be sundown. So though all Sabbaths are important, this particular one referred to as a high Sabbath is really important because it's going to take place during the week of this very special festival called Passover. So when a Sabbath falls during one of these very special holidays, it's called a high Sabbath. Preparation for it now is involved. And Jewish people really, really get about the business of preparing for the Sabbath. And so they're quite concerned because there's some unfinished business. These three who have been crucified are still hanging on, the, on their respective crosses. They've been impaled there. The Roman custom was generally to leave victims of crucifixion hanging on the cross. Sometimes, you see, they were still alive. Sometimes uh, their last breath would not be taken for days after the crucifixion. Romans did this as a deterrent. Do not commit crimes against Rome. And they would leave the bodies there until they died, and then birds and ravenous animals would come and pick at the flesh. That's what they would do. And then eventually the body would be taken down and buried. Well, Jewish sensibilities were aroused by this. They would have no part in it because they believed that uh, if these victims of crucifixion remained hanging on the cross unburied and the Sabbath was inaugurated, particularly a high Sabbath, they believed the land would be defiled. 
So the Jewish religious leaders made a request to Pontius Pilate, a very unusual request. Why did they go to Pontius Pilate? Well, as you know, um, the land was occupied then by Rome, and Pontius Pilate was designated by the Roman emperor to run the show. He was the key Roman governing official in the Holy Land at this particular time. So they went to him. They didn't want the land to be defiled, and so they had this notion that the process of dying for these victims could be hastened if their legs were broken. It wasn't unusual. In fact, in the 60s, 1960-something, they found the skeletal remains of someone who had been crucified and his legs had been smashed. Roman executioners carried a specific hammer, kind of a mallet, and they would break these big bones of, a, of the legs of the crucified ones. Why? Well, you see, they're their legs were on a small platform, if you can imagine it. They were pierced through at the ankles, and they were resting, to some extent, their weight on this platform, and they would push themselves up to take themselves off the cross, if you will, to get some, some relief and open up their chest cavity so that they could inhale and exhale freely. So if you break the legs, then they couldn't apply that pressure on the platform, they could get no relief. In fact, the death then they experienced would be of suffocation. And so breaking the legs would hasten the process, and that's what the Jews asked for. And so here what ha is what happened, verse 32 now. The soldiers therefore came, the Roman soldiers, and they broke the legs of the first man and of the other man who was crucified with him, with Jesus. See if you have an explanation for this, and if you do, please tell me. I don't have one. Uh, Jesus was crucified in the middle and criminals on either side of him. And according to this text, unless I'm misreading it, it looked like they went to the outer men first and broke their legs, one to the left of the Lord, one to the right, and then they went to the Lord, as you'll see. Why did they do it that way? This is my question. I don't think anything in the Bible is there by accident. It's all inspired. And I'm just wondering. I've heard some fanciful theories about it. I'm not interested in those. I'm just wondering why. Uh, something for you to think about if I get a little too boring for you. And if you come up with something, let me know, would you? Because I don't want you to know anything that I don't know. So here's what happened. They came to Jesus last, now verse 33. But coming to Jesus when... They, remember, these are Roman soldiers. There were four of them at least. When they saw that he was already dead, they didn't break his legs. There's no need to do that if one is, has already died. Jesus is dead. You know why he's dead? Well, he determined the time of his death. Nobody can impose it upon him. He chose the very specific Surely the purpose of his dying was for us as a substitute, but also the timing of his death. It wasn't imposed upon him. He willed his own death, including its timing. All this was outside of the control of the Jews and of the Romans. The Lord Jesus remained fully in control even at this time. So here's my question, and I hope I'm not, uh, I don't know, maybe introducing something that I shouldn't, but I'm just wondering do you think it's possible that the Roman soldiers could have been mistaken about this? Maybe the Lord didn't die. Maybe he fainted. People advance this notion. 
He didn't die on the cross. He swooned. In fact, they call it the swoon theory. Then he was entombed and resuscitated in the tomb in its cold, moist air. That's the theory, you see. So I'm just wondering, could these Romans have been mistaken about what we take for granted, that this Jesus, in fact, died? Well, here's my answer. Tell me what you think. No, that's not likely at all that they would have been mistaken about this. Remember who we're dealing with, folks. We're dealing with soldiers who are trained in death. This was a select group. They were executioners. They killed people as a profession. That's what they did. They were professional murderers. Do you think they would be mistaken about the throes of death? Maybe you or I, the uninitiated, would be. But this is what they did. And it wasn't just one of them. There were at least four. We read about this when they were casting lots for the Lord's garment. Do you think all four of these professional Roman executioners would be mistaken about whether this Jesus died or just fainted on the cross? I don't, I don't buy this. Now, I bring this up because in spite of the obvious to us fact of the Lord's death, you may be surprised to know that many reject that. In fact, in the first century, uh, around the same time that John is actually writing this gospel that we are reading, there came to be a heresy known as docetism. Comes from a Greek word meaning to seem to be or to appear. And the docetists believed that Jesus in fact did not die, literally. They don't believe he was really human. They believe he just appeared. He seemed to die on the cross. It was a heresy that had to be confronted early on in the life of the church called docetism. And you may be surprised to know that is the teaching of Islam. Did you know that? Muhammad, uh, the chief prophet in Islam, was very influenced by the teaching of docetists early on. And so he wrote in the Quran this, they did not kill him, neither did they crucify him. It only seemed to be so. Can you see how we get the word docetism? So that's a teaching in the Quran. I'm not trying to offend uh, anyone of a different faith. I'm just stating what is clearly there in their own holy book. Jesus only seemed to die, you say. It's very interesting when you go to Israel today, there are... Uh, uh, gates through which the Lord entered on Palm Sunday in which he will enter again called the Golden Gates or the Eastern Gate. And a Muslim leader centuries ago bricked those in so that he couldn't get through when he returns. And then they put a Muslim cemetery right outside the gates because they said a rabbi like Rabbi Jesus would not defile himself by walking amongst the dead. Now, they do not believe that Jesus literally died on the cross. They do not believe that God became man, that God would condescend and become human. They believe he was just an apparition kind of a spirit. But they're doing all of these things uh, to dissuade folks like us from having this hopeful expectation of Jesus literally returning. He will not, you see. He's just spirit. 
It's just an apparition. So that's the teaching, sadly, that millions of people hold to today, that Jesus did not occupy a real body and nor did he suffer a real death. Now, this is a very important issue for us, folks, because this is part of what we call the gospel, isn't it? That Jesus died. The gospel, the good news. These are not, these are not my words. Uh, I, I'd like to share with you the words of Paul as expressed in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. He said, I delivered to you as of first importance, uh, 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 as of first importance what I also received. He receives something and he's delivering the same thing. And here it is, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried. And burial is really a good proof that the one buried has died. Paul is including this as part of the essential message which he received, which changed his life and which he spent the duration of his life disseminating to others that Christ died for our sins. Folks, if Jesus didn't die for our sins, we have to die for our sins. Can you see how important this is? Did he die a literal real death in a real body? Paul says he did. For Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Folks, if Jesus didn't die a literal death... There is no literal resurrection. And if there is no literal resurrection, folks, our hope is in vain. Can you see, therefore, why this is so very, very important? So here's what happened, verse 34. Next, one of the soldiers pierced his side, the Lord's side, with a spear. And immediately there came out blood and water. Well, you ask yourself the question, what would have motivated this Roman soldier to do such a thing. Wasn't it an act of just irrational brutality? Maybe. But I think there was more to it. If you thrust a spear into the side of one hanging on the cross, if that one is still alive, you would expect some sort of movement, some kind of response. But there was none. What effused from the Lord's crucified body, dead body, was blood and water. He was dead, folks. The Lord occupied a real body for you and for me. And in that real body, he suffered not only the throes of all the preliminaries to crucifixion, he suffered the reality of crucifixion and then ultimately death. He did it so that you and I could live forevermore. This is a very, very important issue now, I tell you, folks, I don't think the Roman soldier who thrust his spear into the Lord's side really knew what he was doing. You know what he did? He just sounded the death knell to docetism and other faith perspectives that deny the literal dying of Jesus. <laughs> this Roman soldier didn't know what he was doing, but he just gave us proof and evidence that this Jesus died. There was no response to the spear. He had died. Again, should we be making such a big deal over this? Yes. Without the real death of the real son of God, there is no real sacrifice for our very real sin. And we would be ones who are without hope. 
And so the Roman soldier who thrust his spear into the Lord's side didn't realize that in so doing, he was giving proof, evidence that Jesus died. In verse 35, he who has seen has borne witness. Now that's John, meek, humble. Nowhere in this gospel does he even mention his name. He doesn't call attention to himself. So look what he says. He, it's John, he who has seen has borne witness and his witness is true. John just feel compelled to make this clear. I'm not insane. I'm not making this up. I'm not a fraud. I have credentials. I am there. I am normal. I have seen this with my own eyes. I know I'm telling the truth. And why is he doing all this? So that you may believe. You may believe. There's a reason to believe in the death the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And John wants to make it clear there's an evidentiary basis for believing in those realities. So John, whose account we are reading, he's emphasizing his credentials. He said, here are my credentials. I was an eyewitness. I was right there. He knows what he is telling us. He knows he's telling us the truth. And he tells us the truth. He states his purpose so that you might believe. Do you mind if I ask you this? Do you? Please take a period of uncomfortable silence here. What's your answer? Private, private. Do you believe Jesus Christ died for your sins? Just where you are. <clears throat> if you believe that, how has the death of Christ affected your life? Please don't misunderstand. I put this question to myself before I'm burdening you with it. Is it just a head thing? That's not good enough. How has the death, the real death of a real Jesus, how has that affected your life? If you say you believe in it, how has it affected the way you live? Think about it. Do you see any changes in your life? Any evidence that this crucified yet risen Savior has taken up his abode in you and now the Christ life is evident in the life you are living out? Do you see evidence of it? If not, we don't want to hurt you. We want to help you. Later, we'd like to meet with you in the Connection Center and just talk about this. Do you have questions about the, the authenticity of your own decision for Christ? Are you not seeing the evidence that you're saved? We want to meet with you. What about if you answer to my question, do you believe? What if it's no, I don't? Well, for some reason you're here. Thank God for that. We really would like to meet with you as well. Not to preach at you, criticize you, or hurt you in any way. We'd like to hear from you and then share with you. We'd like to have an exchange of, of ideas about what we believe is so very, very important. Who is Jesus? What should be our response to him? And so we would like to provide time for you as well, if that's your situation, to meet with one of us in the Connection Center when we conclude our service tonight. Now, folks, at a time when it appears that God may have lost control of the universe, his own son has been put upon, uh, abused and stripped naked and spat upon and mocked and impaled on 
a cross. At a time when it looks like the creator of the universe has taken a break from it all. No, that's not true. He remains fully in control of every single detail. In fact, look what it says in verse 36. For these things, all that we're reading about, even the distasteful things, these things came to pass. Why? That the scripture might be fulfilled. Here's one in particular. Not a bone of him shall be broken. God was orchestrating everything so that you and I would have confidence our commitment to Christ is not in vain. He's the Messiah. What about this? Not a bone of him shall be broken. What is that all about? And my people were enslaved in Egypt for 400 plus years, as you recall. They cried out to God. He heard their cry. He sent plagues upon Pharaoh. He didn't respond well. God said to the children of Israel, there'll be a final plague. Your lives can be spared, however. Take a lamb, a male, unblemished lamb, a lamb without defect. Sacrifice it. Apply its blood to the doorposts of your homes. And when my angel, the angel of death, sees the blood applied to the doorposts of your homes by your faith, death will be obligated to pass over because of the blood. And then God instructed them, now take the rest of that lamb whose blood you just shed and as a family, consume it at dinner. And so it says this in Exodus chapter 12, verse 46, it is to be eaten, the Passover lamb, it is to be eaten in a single house. You are not to bring forth any of the flesh outside of the house, nor are you to break any bone of it. The first Passover lambs uh, experienced this. (laughs) They died. Their blood was shed. None of their bones were broken. The ultimate Passover lamb has just been crucified during Passover. And so as to show the connection between those lambs, they're just a foreshadowing of the ultimate Passover lamb to show the connection and that he's fulfilling it all. So too God ordained, according to scripture, that none of his bones would be broken either. Can you see how this is all being orchestrated? The Romans are not in control. The Jews are not in control. Almighty God remains in control. At a time when we may be tempted to think he's lost control. No. Folks, everything happening here is to fulfill Scripture. In fact, did you know this? There are over over 300 Old Testament predictions or prophecies of what would befall the Messiah to come later. 300 predictions pertaining to the first coming of the Messiah. Over 300. And every single one of those has been perfectly fulfilled in Jesus. But critics say, by chance. I'm telling you, that's the argument. It just happened by chance. So let's approach this. There was a man named Peter Stoner, a scientist. He wrote a book, in fact, called Science Speaks. It was published by Moody Press in 1963. In it, Dr. Stoner applied the science, and it is, the science of probability. He applied the science of probability to the prophecies a point in the Old Testament pointing to the coming Messiah. 
and they have to do with things like his birth will be in Bethlehem, uh, he will enter Jerusalem on a donkey, he will be betrayed by one close to him, he will be betrayed, in fact, for 30 pieces of silver, his hands and feet will be pierced through, all of these things and many more predicted with regard to the Messiah's coming, predicted in the Old Testament, fulfilled as we read in the New Testament by Jesus Christ. Could it be by chance? Well, Stoner concluded based on the, not based on faith, on the science of probability that the odds of someone fulfilling by chance just eight, eight of these 300 prophecies would be one in 10 to the 17th power. I'm no mathematician. This is what it means. It means one and then write 17 zeros after it. So you know a million is six zeros, right? One with, not six zeros, 17 zeros. That's the chance. That, 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 those are the odds that by chance someone could have fulfilled just eight of the 300 prophecies, one in 10 to the 17th power. Now, to help folks like me who don't get this, to understand it, Dr. Stoner very sensitively offers this great illustration. We live in the great republic of Texas. Imagine that there were uh, silver dollars um, made available. The uh, number of them would be uh, one to the, would be 10 to the 17th power. 10 to the 17th power, that number of silver dollars were scattered over the state of Texas. You know what it would do? Would cover the entire state. This is a big place, Texas. It would cover the entire state two feet deep. Two feet deep. Let's say then you took a man who was blindfolded. You just pushed him anywhere. You put him in Angleton, Houston, who knows? You put him anywhere you want to put him and he's blindfolded. You have previously put a mark on one of those silver dollars, and you told this blindfolded man, go and find it. Silver dollars covering Texas two feet deep. What do you think the odds of that man, blindfolded, putting his hands on the one marked silver dollar? Well, it's one, uh, it's 10, to the 17th power. Those are the odds that this Jesus, by chance, could have fulfilled just eight of the 300 prophecies in the Bible. Now, folks, we're people of faith, but I don't have that much faith. I don't have faith to believe that, by chance, Jesus could have fulfilled eight prophecies uh, 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 predicted uh, 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 previous to his coming in the Old Testament. But this is just eight. What if you took 48 of those prophecies? So Stoner takes it one step further. He says the chance of a person fulfilling by chance uh, 48 of those prophecies would be one in 10 to the 157th power. So that's the number one with 157 zeros. So how much is that? Okay. So Stoner offers this illustration. You know what an electron is? Uh, I had to look it up, to be honest with you. Why, why not be? I forgot. That was in school a long time ago. An electron is part of an atom, right? It's a it's negatively charged particle. It goes around an orbit. It goes around the hub or the nucleus of the, the atom. 
an electron. It's real small. It's so small, in fact, that if you wanted to get enough electrons to, to line them up just one inch long, that would be um, the same number of electrons. That would be one in 10 to the 157th power. And let's say you wanted to count those electrons just in a line one inch long, and you counted 250 of them every hour for 24 hours each day. You know how long it would take for you to count the electrons in just that one inch line? 19 million years. Then let's say you blindfolded a guy again and you somehow marked one of those little electrons and you asked him by, uh, to, to find it, what are the chances he's gonna find it? Again, one in 10 to the 157th power. Now people would say, that's crazy, that's not gonna happen. By chance, he's not gonna be able to do that. Well, that's exactly the odds of Jesus by chance fulfilling 48 of the 300 prophecies spoken of him in the Old Testament. Now, I botched up the explanation of that because I didn't like science at all. I don't know if you, so you could pick that up. And I was horrible in math and all the rest. So I did the best I could. But you get the idea. The theory that Jesus fulfilled these by chance requires more faith than just accepting the fact that he's the Messiah. For instance, here are some of the prophecies. Bear with me, I'll just read to you. The Messiah, who's yet to come from the Old Testament perspective, the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. The Messiah will be born of a virgin. The Messiah will be a prophet like Moses. The Messiah will be tempted by Satan. The Messiah will enter Jerusalem triumphantly. The Messiah will be rejected by his own people. The Messiah will be betrayed by one of his followers. The Messiah will be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. The Messiah will be tried and condemned. The Messiah will be silent before his accusers. The Messiah will be smitten and spat upon. The Messiah will be mocked and taunted. The Messiah will die by crucifixion with hands and feet pierced through. The Messiah will suffer with sinners. The Messiah's garments will be divided by casting lots. The Messiah's bones will not be broken. We just read about that. The Messiah will die as a sin offering. The Messiah will see his seed. The Messiah will be buried in a rich man's tomb. The Messiah will be raised from the dead. And I can go on and on. Do you think one person by chance could fulfill those randomly by chance? Folks, if so, you have more faith than I do. It's easier for me to believe that Almighty God planned all this, every one of these details, so that you and I can be certain that our faith in the Lord Jesus as the Messiah is very well placed. Again, I don't want to... Um, be obnoxious to other faith perspectives, but I'm telling you what Jesus did, Moses did not do, Mohammed did not do, and Buddha did not do. None of them did. People say today it doesn't matter who you believe in as long as you believe in something. That's not true, folks. It does matter. Acts 4.12. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. We can't toy with this. Jesus is the Savior. There are no others. That's not a blind leap from logic to faith. You don't have to perform a lobotomy to be a devoted follower of the Lord Jesus. On the contrary, use your head. 
God doesn't want us to just jump out into the dark. And so God has orchestrated every one of these events in the life of Jesus so as to show us who else could have fulfilled these 300 predictions other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And John, the writer of this book, even in this chapter, John chapter 19, told us three times all this is happening so that scripture would be fulfilled. Uh, uh, Verse 24, they said to one another, let's not tear it, let's cast lots for it to decide whose it shall be. This was to fulfill scripture. Verse 28, after this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill scripture, said, I am thirsty. And verse 36, which we just read, for these things came to pass that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not a bone of him will be broken. Everything that happened not only was not out of the control of God, it was specifically orchestrated by God so that we could see Jesus, his life and his death, fulfilled scripture. Our faith in him is well-placed. Folks, what's the future for Sagemont Church? I think it's good. (laughs) I mean, the Lord Jesus didn't lead us this far to abandon us in the desert. But as we pray about the future, please pray that whatever changes there are around here don't involve us um, ever inviting someone into this, on this platform who doesn't have a high view of Scripture. We're dead if someone doesn't have a high view of Scripture. I don't care how good-looking, entertaining, and dynamic a person is. If that person is not taking his marching orders from Scripture, we ought to run for the hills. Thank God for the foundation laid here by our founding pastor over over these years. We haven't deviated from Scripture. We don't take our marching orders from an ecclesiastical body. We respect each other's opinions, but they're not authoritative. The Scripture is. How many times has Brother John said, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. May it never be that we ever invite anyone to the pulpit or any of our classrooms here at Sagemont Church who doesn't think the same thing. Why? Look what God is saying. All this is happening so that the scripture might be fulfilled. Everything that's happened here is to remind us what God says in the pages of scripture is very, very reliable. We are not reading the words of man or woman. When we read this, this is the word of God. That's why we study it. We want to know it. And of course, we want to obey it. It's authoritative for us here. And may that always be the case. And why did John, led by God, why did he record all this? Well, I'll tell you why. In John 20, if we ever get there, I think we're, we're getting there. We're getting close. In John 20, verse 31, uh, John writes, these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. That means Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Everything we've been looking at written by John is for this singular purpose that you may believe, that you may know Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you may have life, not in your good deeds, not in your efforts, not in your promises. No, that you may have life in his name. That's the whole point of this book. And so as we draw to a close for tonight, uh, please 
give me another minute so that I can call your attention to one more um, Old Testament passage of Scripture fulfilled here in this very text, verse 37, with which we'll close. And again, another Scripture says, they shall look on him whom they have pierced. That's a quotation from Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. Much can be said about it, but I, I don't want to say much about it. I just want to say a little. It appears that John is applying this, perhaps, to that very Roman, those Romans who pierced through the Lord's, his hands, his feet, his side. What is happening, if this is the case, is that we're seeing here a fulfillment of Zechariah 12.10. They shall look on him whom they have pierced. And you say, well, that's for them. I'm absolved of responsibility. No, there's not a person in here who at one time hasn't thrust uh, hasn't pierced through the Lord Jesus, hasn't denigrated him and treated him as less than he actually is. Every one of us is like that Roman soldier and this prophecy says, ah, oh, there will be a day when those who have denigrated the Lord and thrust him through with a sword of unbelief, uh, uh, a, a sword of uh, disdain, a sort of insult, everyone will look on him whom they have pierced. Now, there's, this is about the first coming of the Lord we've read. But the same writer, John, who is so carefully telling us about the first coming, do you know he also tells us about the second coming of the Lord? The same John wrote another book. In fact, it's the last book in the Bible, Revelation. And in it, he tells us about the second coming of this Jesus. Listen to what he says. Revelation chapter 1, verse 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. Folks, we have at one time pierced him through with our unbelief, if you will. Before he comes again, we have time now, however, to do something about it. We can say, oh, God, forgive me. I treated you as if you're a criminal or as if you don't matter or as if you have no claim to my life. I thrust through uh, your side with a, with a pointed nature of my unbelief and, oh, God, forgive me the sin of my rebellion and unbelief. Folks, if you respond rightly to Jesus' first coming, you are fully prepared for his second. I don't want to be amongst those mentioned in Revelation chapter 1, verse 7, who mourn when they realize that Jesus they rejected and ignored and didn't believe in. He's coming with the clouds because he is transcendent deity and every element of creation is at his beck and call and the only ones who have the audacity to resist his will are us don't do it say lord jesus forgive me i have denigrated you minimized you pierced you through with my unbelief but no longer come into my heart lord jesus for you are the pierced one who rose up from death you died on my behalf for my sins. You died a real death and a real body so my real sins can be really forgiven. Come into my life, risen Savior, and impart to me the kind of new life that changes people. 
I value the change. And oh God, when you do that, I'll be ready for your second coming, which could come at any time, folks. At any time. Lord Jesus, now we appeal to you to go through our wonderful group assembled here tonight as only you can and in your power, the power of your very Holy Spirit, would you affect the hearts, minds, and wills of those who have resisted you and haven't accepted you? Oh God, I pray not one of us would leave here tonight without having said, Lord Jesus, be my Savior, I have sinned. Oh God in heaven, I pray for the miracle, that's what it is, of salvation to take root in the lives of anyone in need of it here tonight. Thank you for going through what you did for us. How happy we are that you won victory over death. Oh, death, where is your sting? It has none. It has no power, for you are the resurrection and the life. Thank you, oh God, for imparting to us the capacity to live forevermore to the extent that we are yours. A lot is at stake, oh God. We have to be right about you. Thank you for your first coming, and boy, those of us who have responded rightly to it, we look forward with hopeful expectation for your second coming, during which time every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that you, Lord Jesus, are in fact Lord. And that's why we pray all these things in your name, the name which is above all names. Amen. Amen.